Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Last year, uh, in January, we published a single absite review, and uh, due to the anxiety of residents nationwide, it was very popular. So we thought this year it'd be good to um, go back and do a little bit more detailed absite review to help all of you uh, prepare for the absite. Just as a disclaimer, um, none of this is actual absite material. We don't have any special access or permissions, but we're just going over sort of the score uh, key objectives in the score portal and covering those here, and hopefully they will come in handy on the ab site. Yeah, so the, you know these are things we put together as we were studying for the ab site. Uh, we thought it was beneficial. We wanted to share it with you guys. Let us know what you want to hear. You know, this is we're really just kind of trying this out. So let us know what you think and any ideas you could have um, for making this better. We really want to you know help everybody out there prepare for the ab site. So, and, and if you've made any of your own ab site reviews, we'd be happy to use those to help uh, record some other episodes. As this is all material we're putting together on our own so uh, so so the topic today is we're going to start with uh, esophagus and if we have time get into a little bit of you know gastric and uh, gastroesophageal reflux so we'll start with just some you know basic anatomy so looking at the esophagus uh, uh, kevin what uh which uh looking at the vagus you have the right left right vagus left vagus which one travels anterior which one travels posterior right and this has to do with the way the stomach uh rotates when it's outside of the abdomen. So it's actually um, the right vagus will be on the posterior of the esophagus. And this actually turns into the celiac plexus. And what is important to know about the celiac plexus coming from the right vagus is that when you're doing a vagotomy on a patient, if you don't divide all the branches of the celiac plexus, uh, there'll be the branch known as the criminal nerve of Grassi that will um, cause persistent hyper um, acid state. So you want, when you're doing a vagotomy, it's the, the right vagus, which can cause the persistent hyperacid state. And then you're looking at, so right vagus goes posterior, left vagus goes anteriorly. Off the right vagus comes the criminal nerve fibrosis, as Kevin said. Off the, off the left vagus, which travels anteriorly, you have your branches to the liver and the uh, biliary tree, the hepatic branches. Uh, and these are important to uh, try and preserve when you're doing, when you're taking down gastrohepatic ligaments and when you're, you know, doing your nissens and your links and all those procedures uh, to be able to identify that hepatic branch and preserve it. Uh, next, we're going to go over some of the, you know, very highly testable different uh, findings on manometry and how this relates to different disease processes of the esophagus. So, John, so your, your patient goes and gets manometry and it shows a high L- lower esophageal sphincter pressure and absence of peristalsis. What's your diagnosis? Well, when you have a high LES pressure and then you don't have any peristalsis, I would be thinking achalasia in this patient. Right, that's your burnout esophagus, achalasia. The absence of peristalsis is very important there. Uh, and then next, so you have high amplitude, repetitive, non-peristaltic contractions. So high amplitude, repetitive, non-peristaltic contractions. What's that? Uh, that would be esophageal spasm. Uh, the When you look at it on the manometry, oftentimes these uh, readings are very chaotic and they don't appear any way associated with the other ones. Now, on the contrary, you have very high amplitude, but it is peristaltic contractions. What's that diagnosis? That would be nutcracker esophagus. 
Okay. And how about uh, when you don't have any peristalsis and then you have a low lower esophageal uh, pressure and then you, uh, also uh, together with uh, reflux? So you think of it as two negatives, the aperistalsis as well as the low LES pressure. You should be thinking scleroderma in these patients and they do have the massive reflux like you talked about. Right. So again, distinguishing that on manometry from achalasia is very important to know that lower esophageal sphincter pressure. Uh, if both are low, scleroderma, if you have a burnout esophagus with a high LES pressure, achalasia. And definitely take a look in your textbooks, um, whichever textbook you use, and just get a glance at these manometry charts because they, they can be very high yield. And Kevin, speaking of achalasia, what's, uh, what causes that? What's the, pathogen- what's the ultimate you know, end pathogenesis of that? So it's thought to be a destruction of the myenteric plexus. Um, so you lose the uh, neuronal ganglion cells. Okay. And bonus points, what, or what, uh, what pathogen causes that? Uh, is that that cruzi one? Yeah, trypanosoma cruzi, I think, is... is uh, if, you're, if anybody ever read that book, uh, what was that? It's microbiology for idiots or whatever <laughs> uh, back in med school. It's uh, Tom Cruise, T. Cruzi. Uh, I, I don't remember exactly. I know the mnemonic had something to do with Tom Cruise. But anyway. Right now, I'll never forget. But but it's on. not all patients that have achalasia have Tom Cruise theory in them, right? <laughs> right, not at all. It's just but, that can be a, yeah. a, a way you get achalasia. Yeah, okay, what's the treatment for that? So um, a lot of, at least on the, the testable answers, you'll generally start with some balloon dilations. Um, you can also try some calcium channel blockers and nitrates. Um, and then it'll proceed to a Heller myotomy. And um, some of the fancier centers nowadays are doing the uh, POEM procedure uh, for achalasia. Uh, per oral endoscopic myotomy. Um, but I think for the test, if there's a surgery, it'll be Heller myotomy. Yeah, you know, I think you, you, you know, you start off with some medical treatments, calcium channel blockers, nitrates, if that doesn't work, you know, then you're moving on. Um, you know, more and more in, in younger patients, people who are good surgical candidates, you go straight for the Heller. It's a more durable uh, treatment for this and then kind of skip the balloon dilation. But certainly if there's any question of their, you know, being a good operative candidate, they undergo some balloon dilations. Um, you know, and John, can you describe a little bit what the principles of the Heller myotomy are? Yeah, I actually just got this in one of my mock oral scenarios. Uh, so you make an incision that should extend two centimeters below the GE junction and then five to seven, seven centimeters proximal to the GE junction. Uh, and then you separate the muscle layers uh, laterally to prevent rehealing. So you go through both sets of muscle layers and they do a partial fundal wrap uh, to avoid additional reflux. And then invariably, they're going to give you that uh, you make a mucosal injury, you're making an esophageal, esophageal injury during, during your Heller myotomy. What do you do in that situation? So generally, you close it and you uh, rotate the esophagus 180 degrees and perform your Heller myotomy on the other side. Yeah, and, and then typically you'll do a, far, a partial fundal wrap too as well, over and that. Jason, what partial fundal wrap is the classic description? Uh, I, I believe it is the uh, toupee. I, I don't know, do you? I just right. thought you'd know because you're pretty smart. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, your options are either to do toupee or, or a door uh, fund application. Um, and the way I always remember those is, you know, toupee goes on the back, like uh, on the back of the head, a toupee. And then you know, with a door, you shunt your front door. So door is an anterior wrap and a toupee is your, is your posterior wrap. And, and what's the thought behind not performing a Nissen in these patients, a full Nissen? From my understanding, it's that... It'll, you know, th- these patients have dysphagia and it's it, the incidence of dysphagia after Nissen is uh, too high in these patients. So the door or the toupee would uh, not be at high of risk for dysphagia. Yeah. That's a, if there's any, that's when we'll get into this a little bit more when we're talking about our Nissens, but it's very important before you do a full wrap to document that they have normal soft geomotility. 
Um, it's uh, it's frowned upon to do a full wrap and anybody who has any evidence of any type of esophageal dysmotility. So this is a topic that I always find interesting because it's one of those kind of like the men syndromes, highly tested, rarely seen uh, diseases. But um, so John, you know, you got this patient, they come in, they have halitosis and they have some dysphagia. Um, you perform a barium uh, swallow on them in the upper esophagus. There's this little out pouching. Uh, what, are, what are we dealing with and what is the pathogenesis for this? So I'd be thinking of a, a Zenker's diverticulum and it is caused by ineffective relaxation of the cricopharyngeus muscle. Uh, and this is typically found in Killian's triangle. Uh, for all your high achievers out there, that Killian's triangle is the triangular area in the wall of the pharynx between the thyropharyngeal and the cricopharyngeus of the inferior constrictor of the pharynx. Probably don't need to know that for absite, uh, but good to know. Jason, uh, is this a true or false uh diverticulum uh, so this is a false diverticulum as it you know kind of herniates through the muscle layers and, and the diverticulum itself only contains the mucosa uh typically you make the diagnosis of these you know as kevin said you have somebody who comes in with you know dysphagia they have bad breath sometimes the diagnosis is made after a perforation after following an egd um but um the the you know the test you want to order is a, is a barium swallow or a gastrograph and um gastrograph or a thin barium swallow and the critical part in the surgery is that you have to have a cricopharyngeal myotomy so you can remove the outpouching whichever way you prefer endoscopically open and remove the outpouching but if you don't relieve uh the pressure of the cricopharyngeus it's going to recur so you have to have a, a cricopharyngeal myotomy okay moving on so let's talk about some uh other highly tested uh, esophageal uh, topics. One would be um, the hiatal hernias. Um, so let's go real quick through. There's you know four types of hiatal hernias. John, what's type one? Type one is when you have the GE junction uh, herniates above the diaphragm, and it's only the GE junction. A type two. Type two is a paraesophageal uh, hernia where the GE junction is actually in a normal position. Uh, but you have part of the stomach that like, herniates up through the uh, the hiatus. Uh, and type three? Type three is a combination of one and two, where you have both the GE junction and a portion of the stomach up through the hiatus. And type four? And type four is a type three, uh, plus you have additional organs, such as the colon, uh, up into the, the uh, uh, through the hiatus. Yep, and the, that's that's uh, the most, I was going to ask you, you beat me to it, what, what's the most common organ you're going to see up there, and it's, it's usually the colon. Uh, so what, what constitutes, for bonus points, what constitutes a giant hiatal hernia? I think that's when you have at least 30% of the stomach in through the chest. And I've seen this once. Yep, exactly. 30% of the stomach. I think it was your through. patient, Jason. Yeah, probably. Probably one of my my failures as a repeat hiatal hernia, was it? Uh, okay, moving on. So the next topic would be next high yield topic for esophagus. We're moving on to Barrett's esophagus. So what what is the definition? What constitutes a Barrett's esophagus? So it's important to know... Uh, simple histology of the esophagus and of the stomach. Uh, the esophagus histology is the mucosa is generally squamous mucosa, whereas the stomach, it's a columnar uh, epithelium that can secrete, the columnar cells can secrete uh, so fluid. So the squamous epithelium of the esophagus becomes like the stomach, becomes columnar. So that classifies as uh, metaplasia and we are not pathologists by any means but this is the surgery understanding of this disease process so what about what's the role of nissens with bear's esophagus what's the i know there's a lot of controversy out there where does where what's the current standing are we should we be performing nissens for barrett's or not I should have re-listened to the Dr. Hunter episode uh, where he, the chief of surgery at OHSU that covers this in detail. 
but I believe the gist of it is that a Nissen is in a patient that has Barrett's is not going to reverse the Barrett's esophagus, but it's going to stop the progression or at least, uh, you know, prevent any further progression of disease. Yeah, you know, I think it's a, it's a hard thing to study in the first place because Barrett's, you know, the, the natural history of Barrett's isn't well understood. A lot of it regresses kind of on its own, so it's difficult to study whether or not a particular intervention has any effect. But uh, yeah, everybody should go back and listen. If you want to get more details into that, uh, go back and listen to the prior podcast we have with with Dr. Hunter and others. So how about uh, with Barrett's esophagus, uh, what's the, you know, h- how do you treat these patients? Let's say you have Barrett's esophagus, you have metaplasia, but no dysplasia. Uh, what do you want to do with that patient, John? Well, like you said, Jason, it depends on the, the level of dysplasia that you have in this specific patient. Uh, for a patient that has no dysplasia, you can do surveillance endoscopy uh, every three years and check for any progression. Okay. And how and uh, how are you doing that surveillance? Are you taking biopsies? Well, typically you do your, your typical EGD and you do your circumferential uh, biopsies of the GE junction. Yeah, and, and can you describe a little bit more about that? You want to take? Uh, I think it's, uh, I believe it's one centimeter uh, circumferentially, uh, and then I forget exactly how much you take ab- above and below. So basically, you want to take one, you know, four quadrant biopsies uh, at one centimeter, one centimeter intervals through your abnormal appearing um, esophagus for surveillance. And how about if you see a low grade dysplasia? Uh, for low grade dysplasia, um, although there is some new literature on this. There's endoscopic eradication. Uh, so your coagulation or your endoscopic uh, mucosal resection, also known as EMR. And then for these patients, you now surveil them much closer than you do with a patient who has no dysplasia. And what about, let's, so let's go on to high-grade dysplasia. So now you have a biopsy that shows high-grade dysplasia on your Barron's patient. How are you going to treat that patient? So it depends if you're a high-speed resident at the University of Washington or uh, some fancy place. But uh, for the absite and for our mock orals and things like that, high-grade dysplasia, the chances of there being a missed carcinoma within that tissue is very high. I think it's 20 30%. Uh, so you get two pathologists to agree that it is high-grade dysplasia because it does vary between pathologists. And then they'll generally get an esophagectomy is the, the board answer. And in practice, we're seeing more of the endoscopic uh, mucosal resections and kind of tumor board discussions. But for the test, uh, high-grade dysplasia, esophagectomy. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm actually not sure how I would answer that question. How, how I would answer that question if I if I got it today. I mean, certainly, you know, the, the confirmation with two pathologists is, is essential. Um uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think if EMR, I think it's getting so prevalent that I think if EMR were on the test, if I had between that and esophagectomy, I might choose the EMR. I may be wrong, but that, that might be what I would choose. But thankfully, there's not questions like this on the website. Not yet. So they'll never put a very controversial treatment algorithm. It'll be generally pretty clear. Um, and if it is, it, it may be one of those uh, infamous uh, test questions where they're testing out to see what how people are answering. So don't get stressed out if you get that on the test. Uh, okay, moving. That's a nice segue into esophageal cancer. So, John, what's the most common uh, esophageal cancer uh, in the United States? Uh, so when we think of esophageal cancer, we think of two types. Uh, you have your squamous uh, as well as your adenocarcinoma. And the most common is the adenocarcinoma, and this, occur, this occurs in the lower esophagus. 
Yeah, this is uh, this may be changing, you know, more recently. But you know, what I was always taught is worldwide squamous cells are most common because it's it's associated with smoking. Um, in the United States, you have adenocarcinoma is more common. It's in the lower third and it's associated with reflux and, and chronic inflammation. There, that that may be the um, epidemiology of that is is constantly changing. Uh, what do you want to do for a T1 tumor? So for a T1 tumor, the absolute answer would be esophagectomy. Although there is a role for endoscopic mucosal resection and T1 low-grade uh, tumors. Okay, and anything greater than a, um, a T1 tumor, what's the answer? Uh, so you do uh, preoperative chemo uh, radiation for these patients prior to resection. Right, okay. So for T1, you can go ahead with the esophagectomy, for, definitely for T2, for some high-grade T1s, but again, that's getting into the weeds, and you can go back and listen to, um, I think our Pellegrini episode talks about this stuff pretty in-depth, but for abside for T2 and above, you need uh, neoadjuvant therapy. And how are we best, you know, when we're working these patients up, how are we going to determine the, the depth of invasion? Well, similar to rectal cancer, the two modalities that we use to determine uh, depth of invasion are endoscopic ultrasound as well as MRI. And they both have their advantages and disadvantages. So Kevin, how about you have somebody who's got a little dys- dysphagia? So Kevin, how about somebody get somebody a little dysphagia and you get a swallow study and it shows, you know, a well circumscribed uh, you know, mass um, uh, in the mid portion of the esophagus that uh, a- appears to be in the um, you know, the the middle the mid layers of the esophagus. Yeah, I think this one would show up on the ab site as like an actual image itself because it has a very characteristic uh, crescent appearance on uh, esophagram. Um, and so this is uh, what they generally call a, a lyomyoma. Um, it's, it's located in the muscularis of the esophagus. How are you going to confirm that diagnosis? Uh, so you're not going to confirm the diagnosis. Um, you're going to, based on imaging alone, um, you can take them uh, to the operating room and perform an enucleation uh, via a thoracotomy for this lesion. Right. So you know you get your you get your you see it on your you swallow probably is the first way you're going to see it. You get your endoscopic ultrasound. You know it looks like a well circumscribed mass and the muscularis propria. Uh, you obviously need to get CT scanning and you make sure you're not dealing with anything malignant. Uh, but then you specifically do not want to biopsy these because the scar from the biopsy can make it the subsequent resection enucleation. Uh, very difficult. So the treatment, um, you know, the, the kind of the answer is the larger ones over five centimeters, or if they're causing any problems, um, they're symptomatic, you excise them through enucleation via a thoracotomy. Um, another one that kind of comes up that we don't deal with often is uh, caustic esophageal injuries. So, you know, you have somebody coming into the ER who drank a bottle of Drano. How how do you, what's your initial management? Specifically, what don't you want to do with these patients, Sean? So you should tell anybody taking care of this patient uh, to do not place an NG tube. They should not not induce vomiting these patients, and they obviously should be be MPO. Yeah, this is important. I mean, I've I've personally, I've never had somebody come in drinking uh, Drano, but I know this, I talked to somebody who this recently came up on their, either their mock orals or, or their actual boards. Uh, so you, you distinguish between alkali and acidic. Alkali, you know, the, the, the Drano uh, example causes, uh, there's two different kinds of necrosis. Which one does the alkali cause? Uh, alkali causes liquefaction necrosis. And is that better or worse than, than an acidic? 
There's a worse injury overall than the uh, acid version. And, and why is that? What kind of necrosis does a, an acid injury cause? That causes coagulation necrosis, um, which would likely lead to a gastric injury. Uh, but the alkali necrosis is also more cl- likely to cause a, uh, excuse me, an alkali injury is more likely to cause cancer. To, you know, to, to uh, predispose that person to a, a later malignancy. Uh, so you want to get, you know, chest film, abdominal uh, um, imaging, uh, some axial imaging, looking for free air as signs of perfor- perforation. Um, and what's the role of endoscopy? So endoscopy is the best way to assess the lesion that you're dealing with. Um, it's important to note that when you're doing your endoscopy, uh, to go down to the level of the injury and do not try to push past it because that would likely lead to a perforation in these patients. Okay. And how about, so you do your endoscopy and you see a little, you see, you know, what looks like a minor injury, just a little bit of hyperemia. What do you want to do with those patients? So that'd be a primary burn. Uh, and these patients, I would just do observation and conservative therapy, uh, including MPO, IV fluids, uh, spitting, antibiotics, uh, and then you can start oral intake after three or four days. Um, And then these patients may actually eventually need uh, serial dilations to recover from their strictures. Yeah, so those you know those with those minor injuries treat conservatively, let it heal, and then deal with the ramifications uh, afterwards. Um, how about if you on your endoscopy you see some exudate, you see some uh, ulcerations? It looks a little bit deeper. Uh, so this would be a secondary burn. Uh, the treatment for these patients is prolonged observation and also conservative therapy. Um, in these patients, you have to worry about a potential perforation and need for esophagectomy. And what would lead you to doing that would be if a patient develops sepsis, peritonitis. Uh, mediastinitis, any free air, contrast, excavation, pneumothorax, or a large effusion. Yeah, so I mean, the over overarching thing is, you know, if it's if it's a little bit, if it's a more superficial injury, you try and treat it conservatively as much as you can, and then deal with the strictures down, let everything heal up. But you know, it's if you have a perforation of your esophagus, you have a perforation of your esophagus. The patient's septic. You got to you got to do what you got to do. So those patients are going to need it with an operation. You do damage control. You stabilize them, and you reconstruct them later. Uh, going down that ro- road a little bit further or to the next you know, step, dealing with the perforation. Um, so what's the most common cause of perforation in the United States, Kevin? Our overzealous endoscopist. Yeah, so this is the patient that comes in. They had an EGD performed either earlier in the day. Uh, they're having some, you know, substernal chest pain and uh, and uh, uh, abdominal pain. Uh, where's the most typical site of uh, of uh, a perforation from an EGD? I believe it's uh, at the highest point of narrowing in the esophagus, which is the cricopharyngeus. Okay. And so we get into the, you know, how do you, an important thing is how, how are you first going to diagnose these patients? What study are you going to get? How are you going to confirm the diagnosis? Well, generally, um, at least the way I've done them is there's nothing, you know, they might have like an effusion on a chest x-ray or something, but there's nothing too dramatic on chest x-ray other than that. So then you'll take them to uh, do a barium, I mean, sorry, a gastrograph and swallow. And then um, if that's not diagnostic, you can give them a barium swallow. And what I've always seen is the gastrograph and swallow followed up by a CT scan all in the same kind of setting to make sure to confirm. Um, if you don't see anything dramatic on the swallow, you put them through the CT scanner and be a little more sensitive to picking up a perforation. Yeah, that's very yeah, that's a very key thing is when you're looking for, obviously if you're looking for a perforation, something with, uh, you know, that there could be extravasation of contrast, you want to start with a water-soluble contrast. So water-soluble gastrograph and 
If that doesn't pick it up, you can't see it on your CT scan. You can do thin barium. Uh, it's a little bit more sensitive, uh, but um, but it certainly uh, always want to start off with something water soluble. You know, there is some there are some patients with esophageal perforation that you will be able to manage conservatively if it's a contained perforation. The patient's stable. Um, you can treat them with NPO, IV fluids, and broad spectrum antibiotics. But you know, the majority of the time, we're going to be dealing with a, a non-contained perforation, at least in the test taking world. So how are you going to um, so how you going surgically how are you going to deal with those patients? So uh, you have a free perforation, a distal esophagus. Uh, what's your approach? Well, thankfully, I've gotten some practice at this after your patient that came in a couple weeks ago. Um, <laughs> it's too soon. <laughs> so. Generally, you're going to perform a a left-sided thoracotomy, um, and you're going to uh, wash out the chest. Um, Then you're going to perform a uh, longitudinal myotomy. Um, And the key thing with the longitudinal myotomy is it has to be be long in order to be able to identify the mucosal injury underneath. Um, And also, I apologize, on your way in, you should be thinking about preserving some of the intercostal uh, to perform a muscle flap, you can also use pericardium and some uh, sometimes diaphragm or refer. sometimes momentum. It's just you, the key is you got to think about it ahead of time when you're entering the chest. That's the time to, to think about raising the intercostal flap that you're going to use to buttress your repair. But yeah, absolutely agree. And left thoracotomy is generally going to be your approach. You have to see the extent of your mucosal injury. That's a key concept. So think, remember that when you're taking your test and you're taking oral boards, you have to see the extent of your mucosal injury. So you have to extend your myotomy. Okay. Where are you going to go from there? Uh, then you're going to uh, perform your repair in layers. So you will uh, primarily repair the mucosa. Then you'll repair uh, the muscularis. You'll perform your uh, buttress. Uh, then you'll widely drain the area with chest tubes um, and you will uh, get out of dodge and closely monitor them in the ICU. Yep, exactly. So repairing two layers, generally what they want to hear is what they're going for is you're using an inner layer of absorbable. So you close your mucosa with, you know, a four OPDS, four or five OPDS, something like that. And then you're going to repair your uh, muscular layer with a permanent suture, something like silk, silk, leave, um, leave drains and get out of town. And then uh, another thing you got to remember is you got to address the issue is why you're there in the per- first place. If it's an EGD, that's one thing. If they're getting an EGD for achalasia, you may have to perform a myotomy at the time. Certainly you have to take care of the reason, uh, that led to the perforation in the first place before you, before you leave the operating room. And just as a heads up for people that haven't taken the absite before, uh, the absite questions are generally very straightforward. They're one liners with a, B, C, D, each one word each are, are very small. So we're getting a little um, kind of into the oral board scenarios here, and we're going to kind of go back and forth. But I think it's okay to have a little greater depth of understanding for things, even though it's not exactly tested on the abside. Yeah, for me, uh, that's a good point. Uh, you know, the, the abside is very straightforward. They're not trying to trick you. For me, it helps to have a little bit of the better clinical context. It just helps me remember some of the details that are going to show up on the test. Just to you know, finish up our esophageal review, let's go real quick, very briefly over gastroesophageal reflux disease. So these are the patients that come to you typically with uh, saying that, you know, the typical symptoms of having some heartburn, some, you know, water brash, you know, saying they're having maybe a little bit of regurgitation, especially when they lie down. But then there's other things that are a little bit more concerning that makes you want to, you know, think that you have to rule out that if there's an underlying malignancy or something else con- uh, contributing to their symptoms. So what are, when we talk about GERD, Kevin, what are the alarm systems of GERD that, that would need a little bit more investigation? 
Right. These are the ones, like he said, that make you concerned for, for mass. Uh, so uh, dysphagia, um, which is difficulty swallowing. Then you can have odontophagia, which is actually uh, painful swallowing. And then certainly, if they have any weight loss, anemia, uh, melana in their stool, uh, all of these things would uh, make you even more concerned. And all these things can be caused to some extent by just run-of-the-mill or severe GERD, um, but you would have to do a... a Serious workup to rule out any malignancy in these patients. So these, these patients pretty predictably get, you know, four key studies. Um, and, and usually if a patient's being referred to the surgeon because of their gastroesophageal reflux, a lot of times the, the gastroenterologists have, have already performed these studies. But, but John, walk us through how you're going to work out this patient. Up. So in no particular order, uh, typically these patients first will get a, a barium swallow uh, and then followed by an upper endoscopy. Probably your first two studies that you usually get. Uh, and it's usually diagnosed on an upper, an upper endoscopy. Uh, but you also can get ambulatory pH testing uh, as well as esophageal manometry for further workup. Yeah, so this, th- these tests give you a lot of information. So barium swallow, you can see a lot of masses. You can see reflux on the barium swallow. You can see if there's any anatomic abnormalities. You can see esophageal motility. Your upper endoscopy, you're going to be able to see if there's any uh, esophagitis. You're going to be able to see if there's any masses. You're going to be able to do biopsies. Your pH testing um, is very important. Um, we'll get into that a little bit here in a second, talking about your Demeester score um, and you know exactly you know, if, you're, if your patient's going to you know, benefit benefit from um, one of the surgeries we're going to talk about. And then your manometry, of course, it's important to document that patients have uh, normal esophageal motility, especially if you're thinking about doing an anti-reflux surgery. So with regards to the pH testing, um, can you, John, can you tell us a little bit of what are the components of a Demeester score and, and how does that weigh into who we choose to operate on? Yeah, for the pH monitoring, essentially the patient. Uh, we'll wear a, uh, a pH probe that is oral uh, taken down. There's also pH probes that can be adhered to the mucosa of the esophagus. Um, but then you, you correlate these, these symptoms of the patient's um, GERD with the potential of having uh, acidity less than 4. And the, the components can include the percent of the total time of pH less than 4, uh, the total uh, time of pH 4 during when their patient's sitting upright, the total number of pH four less than four uh, when they're supine, and then you also look at the number of reflex episodes um, greater than five minutes in duration. Yeah, and a Demeester score over fourteen indicates um, a reflux. Now you're not going to have to know the details of this, especially for the outside, but it's something to be aware of. It may show up in the stem of a question or something, asking you what you want to do for a patient. So, Kevin, when we we're talking about this, this, the surgical options for uh, reflux. What are, you know, there's, a, there's a, a lot of different procedures out there, but what are the overall goals uh, for any uh, anti-reflux surgery? Right. So the thought is, especially if they have a hiatal hernia, like a, a type 1 hiatal hernia, you want to restore the normal anatomic position of the stomach and the GE junction. So if you have a, a GE junction that is intrathoracic and not intra-abdominal, uh, there'll be negative uh, pressures in the thorax that will allow uh, reflux to occur. And so by placing the GE junction back into the abdomen, um, it recreates the anti-reflux valve um, that has naturally occurred. And so it's important, you know, like we were talking about earlier with the hiatal hernias, um, is that you make sure that you have a you really have to mobilize enough of the esophagus um, so that the GE junction is comfortably within the abdomen. So, you know, you may be um, mobilizing five, seven centimeters of a 
esophagus up into the chest in a deep, dark hole to ensure that you're going to have the GE junction resting comfortably within the abdomen to prevent to create that anti-reflux valve and to keep it in that position. Yeah, I've heard I've heard a lot of people I've heard people say that that's actually the most important uh, part of a lot of these procedures is your mediastinal dissection and mobilizing that esophagus. Uh, unfortunately, it's often the, the most overlooked part and um, potentially the the part of the procedure that uh, a lot of surgeons uh, end up cutting corners on. It's scary putting sticks up there. It certainly is. It's not a comfortable place to be, especially if you're not there frequently. Okay, what next? And then, of course, uh, you know, GERD and hiatal hernias, we're kind of mixing them together here. Uh, but you're, you assume that there is a defect in the diaphragmatic cura. So you have to uh, approximate the cura, um, generally with a permanent suture. Um, and then sometimes, depending on the size of the defect, um, you may use like a biologic mesh in this position or potentially a, a lightweight polypropylene to help keep the um, crew approximated. Yeah, I wouldn't get into the weeds on the ab side about what kind of mesh, if you're going to use a mesh, what kind of mesh, but certainly approximating the diaphrag- diaphragmatic career is an important step. Um, and then, you know, you want to make sure that you completely mobilize your fundus and perform, you know, that loose or that, yeah, that two centimeter, that floppy um fund application performed over a large bougie so we're talking 50 or 54 french and jason uh, what happens if you can't get enough of the uh stomach uh intra-abdominal what well the, procedure yeah, can you perform yeah so you, they may be asked that you need to get more esophageal length uh you can perform a collie's gastroplasty um which is uh frequently described rarely seen and it Getting into the different types of wraps, I don't think you need to know too much about this, especially for the ab site. We already talked briefly about it. There's a full uh, Nissen fund application, a 360, post, 360 degree posterior flap from there. Uh, there's you know the transthoracic, the the, the Belzy Mark IV. There's a door fund application, which again shut the front door. It's a it's an anterior repair, of 180 to 200 degrees. There's the toupee fund application, which is a posterior 270 degree flaps and the, uh, wrap. And then there's the the hill uh, repair. But again, um, you know these are all variants on a theme and and uh, not likely to need to know the details of them for the ab site. Um, important uh, may show up in there is how to manage the post-op dysphagia. It's not uncommon for a lot of these patients to have a little bit of dysphagia. Generally, that will resolve with conservative management over you know a couple of two to three weeks um, as the swelling and edema goes down. But certainly, if they present and they can't handle their own secretions and it's uh, very significant, that may need an operation to take down. But for the most part, a little bit of dysphagia post-op is fine. Um, as long as uh, it'll resolve after the swelling kind of goes down. And then, uh, John, how about uh, you do your, your fund application and you uh, get a chest x-ray in the, in the, in the PACU and it shows you know, a two-centimeter um, uh, capnothorax on the, uh, on the left side of the chest. What are you going to do with that? Do they need a chest tube? Uh, these patients do not need a chest tube. Uh, most likely this will resolve since it is CO2 inside the chest. Uh, if they are symptomatic, though, I would, I would further evaluate. Okay. So that kind of wraps up our, you know, our overall esophageal review. We're going to do a couple of kind of quick hits, a high-yield uh, anatomy um, uh, facts here to, just at the end. So, uh, John, why don't you lead us through some? All right, so Kevin, what are the uh, the layers of the esophagus? Well, these are the important parts of the uh, that might be tested on an abscite. So, I like to correlate the esophagus and the rectum with 
regards to cancer and workup and things like that. But for the, the esophagus is all you have is the mucosa and the muscularis. Does it have a serosa? Uh, no, this, the esophagus and the rectum do not have serosas. And when we look at the blood supply of the esophagus, uh, it obviously based on its anatomy does not come from all the same blood supply. So break it down for me, cervical, thoracic, and abdominal. Where does the cervical blood supply of the esophagus come from? So the cervical uh, supply, and I've you know, heard rumor mills of people saying that they've seen questions like this on uh, the ab site. So generally it's from the inferior thyroid artery, which Jason, by the way, which uh, parathyroids is the inferior thyroid artery supply? Well, it supplies all four parathyroids, both the inferior and superior. Boom. So, yeah, it's got a lot of work to do. It's got to apply, supply the superior esophagus. It's got to supply all the parathyroids. Um, and then the middle of the esophagus is uh, supplied by the uh, direct branches off of the aorta. Um, and then, Jason, how about the uh, lower part of the esophagus, lower uh, one-third? So that comes off your phrenic arteries and your left gastric artery. So for... Um, Bonus points, what are two other anatomic structures in the body that have a multi-level vascular supply? Okay, Jason, we both missed it. Just tell us. <laughs> the bile duct and the ureters. So what's the multi-level of the bile duct? That's for a different that's for a different uh, <laughs> it's for a different episode. It's because he doesn't know it. Uh, and the last thing, Shotsky's rings. Okay, so what are you going to do with a, a patient with a Shotsky ring? What's the treatment? So, you know, I, I've had these patients, they come in complaining of uh, dysphagia, and you uh, do the full workup, and they have a kind of isolated, specific spot um, seen on the barium esophagram and on the EGD. Uh, no mass is associated with it. Unfortunately for these patients, uh, you do not... Well, fortunately or unfortunately, you do not do an esophagectomy for these patients. Um, so you can just do dilations um, for these patients to help kind of disrupt the ring, um, either with a, a bougie um, or a balloon to help open up these Shatsky rings. So, and then the th anatomy of the thoracic duct is super high yield in all of surgery. Uh, and so a high yield anatomy point um, that you can see on the uh, Absite is the thoracic duct. Can you tell us the course of the thoracic duct, Jason? Uh, yeah, sure. So it's a lymphatic duct. It originates in the abdomen. Um, in the abdomen, um, it, uh, it forms a pathway called the cisterna chile. It passes up through the aortic hiatus and the diaphragm, and it crosses over um, from right. To, well, first off, it runs. Um, between the um, uh, between the the, the descending, the, I'm sorry, the thoracic aorta and the azagous vein, um, it crosses over at the level of T5 from um, from right to left, and it ends up draining uh, into the, the confluence of the internal jugular and the left subclavian. Yes, and it can be easily damaged and can be a big problem. They're very um, difficult to manage. Very difficult. Um, make them NPO and uh, don't give them any fat. Um, okay, so that wraps up our first absite review. These are still uh, we've decided we're actually going to be publishing these every weeks from now, every week from now until the absite. So if you guys have ideas, topics, we're going to try and uh, this week was kind of a clinical topic, esophagus. Next week we'll do a more basic science topic, and we'll kind of bounce back and forth as to not put you to sleep too much. So if you have any ideas of how we can make these better, um, or you have some. Uh, review material you'd like us to use or help us out, uh, feel, feel free to send it to us and we'd be happy to use it to help uh, educate the masses uh, prepare for the absite.
All right. Thanks, Scott. Well, thanks a lot, guys. And we'll, uh, uh, again, give us your ideas, and we're doing these for you. So let us know what we can do. Until next time, dominate the day.